everybody. Happy Friday. Kevin Cole here, Unexpected Points, the NFL analytics podcast. <laughs> Gotta come up with a better tagline than that. What do you call it there? Um, I like the double pivot is a soccer analytics podcast. They call themselves the most agreeable soccer analytics podcast. Um, am I the most agreeable football, American football podcast? Mm, probably not. I got a lot of got I got a lot of disagreements. <laughs> a lot of disagreements with the public, uh, fans. I mean, I kind of ignore the fans. A lot of a lot of other NFL media analysts. Um, I got a lot of disagreements. Try to quell them a bit. Try to air them more on here and on the Substack than on the old Twitter bot. Or sorry, Elon, uh, on the X bot. Uh, but you know. I got some disagreements from time to time. One of the disagreements that I have, with some people at least, and again, I ignore the replies in Twitter, but I do read them if they're also following me, because then they'll show up. Um, Aaron Schatz, friend of the friend of the pod, yesterday sent out a message saying that he thought DVOA was high on the bills, having them. Let me let me let me look this up to make sure that I'm getting the correct number here. Because if I if I'm not okay, having them fourth, I don't know why he thought the 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 DVOA loved them. Well, I have a little quibble here, which is saying he said he thinks he says I thought DVOA loved the Bills more than humanly possible at this point, having them fourth. But both ESPN's FPI and Kevin Cole's power rankings uh, ratings put the Bills still at number one. So. The thing is, versus the market, it's actually not that – it's actually low on the bills. Going into this week, if you go to um, Impredictable, they have rankings based upon market lines. And the bills are third as far as what they call – they have a number they call their generic points forward. And that's basically the same number as my power rating, which is what you would expect the team to be favored by against a league average opponent on a neutral field. So going into this week, they had KC at number one at 6.7, San Francisco number two at 6.3, and then Buffalo number three at 6.0. So a difference between those, but incremental differences between those two. And then Philly is next at 5.7, and then we have a bigger drop down to Miami at 4.6. We have a 1.1 point drop. So the top four, it was one point separating the top four. And again, the markets, you know, 0.7 points difference between Buffalo and Kansas City. Now, for every NFL ranking out there, power ranking, every NFL power ranking across the board, other than my own, and it sounds like FPI, which is also a model-based thing. In other words, you're not going in there and just uh, changing things around when you when you feel like you need to. Or let's face it, they're not using models at all in these things. So you're not reacting probably too much to week over week results. Ravens were a huge reaction in week over week results. Um, and you're not reacting too much to just win loss records as opposed to fundamentals. You know, if you're, if you're absorbing things on a week by week basis and you're saying in the case of the bills, this is what I had been saying was, yeah, they won. Yeah. It didn't look great because the final score was close or yeah, they lost and they look kind of, eh. but then once I make some adjustments in here, they they look better most of the time in most of these games. And they had one of the highest priors 
going into the season, which I'm still waiting a little bit in my numbers. I know people have disagreements as to whether or not you should be weighing priors at this point in the season into the numbers. Uh, I am still to a degree. So they're up at top. But again, there's a cluster of a bunch of teams at the top. And the markets are telling us the same thing. The Bills are in a cluster of a bunch of teams near the top. Um, it's fine to be highly rated on them. One of the interesting takeaways, though, from the responses to Schatz's tweet, and, uh, you know, I guess my better judgment, I looked at them so I could see those that are even for people not following me. But uh, so here, here's some of the responses. Injury is not part of these formulas, eh? I like the Bills' offense, but they've lost all these studs on defense, which makes this tough to accept. Um, and this says, at some point, it needs to be recognized that those weeks, meaning the earlier weeks where they were playing well, are not reflective of the current team. There's no signal in games that had a different defense on the field. No signal. Zero. Okay. Um, this is Coach Coach KGB. <laughs> This is this is a good one here. Uh, as someone who watches every snap of the Buffalo Bills, he watches every snap, so I, I got to take his opinion very seriously. Um, does he watch all, all 22, though? He didn't mention if he's watching the all 22, so I, I'll have to wait and see on that. It's mind-boggling. I love the Twitter. I love the Twitter because it can't just be like, oh, you know, I watch every snap, and it's like, you know, I disagree with this. No, it has, it has to be mind-boggling people mind-boggling that any metric any metric would have them as a top 10 team given the inability of the offense to find its identity hey you, you can't measure finding identity ness <laughs> at the defensive injuries top 10 he wouldn't put them in the top 10 the power rankings mind-boggling to have them in the top 10 another person to these account for defensive injuries Blah, blah, blah. So everything is like a defensive injury type of situation, right? Um, and I get it. Like, it matters, right? You have a cluster of injuries. You have Tredavious White, who's been out for a few weeks now. You have Matt Milano, who's kind of a big deal. Um, you have some other injuries there. So, yeah, these are these are good players. And, you know, it's not a cluster of injuries, but you could say White and Milano probably hurts their coverage ability since they're both in the general coverage scheme. But yet... You need a lot of injuries. Oh, one of the responses on here was that a few key defensive injuries are more meaningful than a quarterback injury, and that should be accounted for. Nah, sorry, not 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 the case. I mean, maybe it's the case in San Francisco with Brock Purdy, who doesn't seem to move the line that much when he gets out and Darnold gets in. But definitely the case for Josh Allen. Trust me, you could lose half your defense, uh, probably more, if <laughs> potentially, and not move the line as much as uh, Josh Allen going out would move the line. You know, I, I, sorry, that's just, that's just the way it works. I know it doesn't feel good to say one quarterback means that much, but trust me, if we had Kyle Allen in there instead of Josh Allen. You think you're seeing some crazy turnovers now with Josh Allen. Wait till Kyle Allen gets in there. Um, so anyway, so that's part of it. It's kind of this overestimation, I think, of defense combined with recency bias. I think it's mostly like the latter, honestly. It's like the recency bias sort of thing than it is over assumptions on defense because these weeks have already gone by. Normally what happens is if I'm going to look at the arc of people figuring out that injuries aren't as big of a deal as they think. Um, if you look at the arc of things, normally it's injuries happen. 
people love to like overweight new evidence, right? People don't like to just say, hey, not that much change week over week. That's not that interesting for anyone. So people overweight the new evidence. The results end up being a lot closer than they than you think. Then, you know, you have your new narrative of either these guys weren't as good as you think who went down or their new players are really, really good. We never could have expected how, the, how good the new players are. And then now we might actually be underweighting the injuries going forward. We had this exact arc. I guess it was last year, right? So last year, going into the playoffs, um, let me look it up to make sure here, because it was going into the it was going into the Bills game, I think, that the Bengals' offensive line had a cluster of injuries. So because of this, the Bengals' offensive line having this cluster of injuries, it was it was like, whoa, I don't know, man. This is going to be this is going to be tough. They're going to Buffalo. Everything, you know, the they don't have this. Burrow's going to be under constant pressure. This and that. Well, they go up there. They win 27-10. Uh, it's really the Bills' offense that was pretty inept. But at the same point in time, if you look at what happened with um, let me get the sack numbers to make sure. ESPN Bills. Sorry, you see how I do great research before this, right? Um, apologies on this one. So, yeah, so they went 27-10. Again, it was mostly like an off offensive display that was bad from the Bills in this one. Josh Allen averaged 6.3 yards per attempt. He had an interception. Um, they couldn't run the ball for anything. Devin Singletary, six carries for 25 yards. Not that bad. Uh, De uh, James Cook, five for 13. They're, again, third downs, right? We always talk about third downs being the big thing. The Bills, 5 for 12 on third downs. The Bengals, slightly better, 6 for 10 on third downs. So all this ends up happening. Burrow takes one sack for two yards in this game where they had all this cluster of offensive line things. So going into the game, everyone's like, oh, my God, Burrow's dead. Uh, the, the, the Bengals are dead. This offensive line, you know, losing all these guys is more important than anything you could possibly imagine. Then the results come in. They're really good. And then people flip around uh, the, totally the other way. I don't want to mention a name here, but I remember seeing someone who said, based on the results of this one game, right, this one Bengals-Bills game, they said, oh, well, now my conclusion is the offensive line injuries that were still in place for the next game, right, were still going to be there when the next game, uh, the, the guys didn't get healthy all of a sudden. They're still going to be there the next game when they were going to Kansas City didn't matter you know that was that was the conclusion well they had this one game burrow didn't take any sacks or took one sack for two yards it doesn't matter these offensive line injuries don't matter and i was thinking to myself guys we're just doing the flip side of the same problem we're overvaluing on one side and then we're taking the recency bias off of one result and we're throwing it to the other side and guess what burrow took five sacks for 32 yards against kansas city in that game i mean not a soul-crushing amount. They only lost the game by three points because the Kansas City's offense wasn't very good, especially could not run the ball, Jesus, um, in that one. But still, flipped around the other side. So I think we saw a bit of this with the Bills where it was like, yeah, these injuries are going to be tough. The results come in. You have the recency bias, which is in the opposite direction. Normally it flips over to saying, oh, the injuries don't matter. But this time the results happen to comport with the idea that the Bills' defensive injuries are so important. People completely overweight that. They assume with high confidence that it's going to continue on forever and so on and so forth. Now, all that being said, 
the Bucks efficiency was okay last night. The Bucks efficiency was okay last night, but the fundamentals of the offense were bad, and the fundamentals of the Bills' defense was good. Uh, okay, let, let's get into the numbers. Enough of my jibber-jabbering here before I even talk about anything. Let's get into the Thursday night football numbers. I'll go ahead and bring it up on the, the old screen here for those watching on YouTube, the Unexpected Points website and all of its glory here. You see the uh, adjusted quarterback efficiency numbers. You see the power rankings. You see the Bayesian um, rankings for quarterbacks. And, of course, all the different game reviews. So I, I'm actually making some of these island game ones free for people to – to look at who aren't subscribed and then the Sunday early and late window and Sunday night games, um, part of the subscription. So uh, what you're looking at here, if you go to unexpected points, you sign up, you'll be able to kind of see all this information for free. But if you want to get the Google sheet, which has all the, the details, you got to, you got to pony up for that. Okay. So let's get into this game. Bucks and bills. So I guess the high line here, was six point differential unfortunate for bills betters in my opinions who i think it was a 10 point spread going into this game i had them being as adjusted difference of 10 so they should have they should have like covered in this one it might have even been wider should have been wider because my you know my adjusted numbers don't really see the fact that the interception which was the most impactful play of the game um if you look i list all the different impactful plays of the game on here so it cost the bills uh, 5.5 expected points, which was the most of any play. It cost them 11.6% win probability, which was the biggest play of the game in an absolute value basis. So in either direction in this game, and it was tipped, right? So my, my numbers don't see that that was tipped. They do downweight it for the fact that it's such an impactful play and it's an interception, all that stuff. But, you know, tips don't come into it as much. It doesn't recognize that it's even more fluky because it was a, was a tipped play. So I have them 16% better. Um, Massive passing game by the Bills. I like the Bills strategy here. I mean, they've actually been running it pretty well. I've seen some people say that they're not running it well. Maybe they're looking at absolute numbers and the fact they don't run it that often and saying that the running game has not been that good. But they've actually ran it pretty well from an efficiency standpoint so far this season. If we look at offensive efficiency in run EPA, they're actually they're fourth. Wow, that's crazy. They're fourth in run efficiency. They are third in success rate. So it's actually pretty good running the ball, but they didn't run it that much. They dropped back the pass a ton in this game. Uh, those rushing numbers that I'm quoting do not include scrambles also. So we're not getting any juice from Josh Allen scrambles on those numbers. We do get juice for Josh Allen running the ball though, which hasn't been doing as much, but that's starting to pick up a little bit this year. Uh, but if you look at success rate, and this is kind of like the the thing you really have to pair with the offensive results to say, Teams that are consistently successful are more likely to continue that than teams that are having these outlier big plays in either direction. So the Bills, 52% success rate in this game, only 38% for the Bucs. So that's a big difference. So how do the Bucs make up this differential to get to within six points? Well, number one, turnover advantage for the Bucs, 5.5 EPA in their advantage. So that's one thing. 6.5 EPA advantage in penalties and special teams, which is weird because, you know, the, the Bucks actually lost points on a 50-yard blocked field goal. They lost 4.1 expected points on that um, because of the fact that the field position and everything else that's happening there. So that's a big loss for them. But even still... They had about a 6.5 advantage when you take special teams and penalties together. 
Uh, they also give up a big punt return to Hardy. So again, it's 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 the penalties. There were two fourth down conversion penalties and then some other penalties, which which ended up adding massive uh, expected points to them. So that's the one thing. And then the penalties also wrap into the other thing, which is these fourth down conversions. So the Bucks were three for three on fourth down. And in total, if you add all those together, and that was their final touchdown drive, they actually, it was, it was consecutive fourth down conversions on series of downs. Like they got all the way to fourth down, they converted. They got all the way to fourth down, they converted. They got all the way to fourth down, they converted. Three times in a row on this drive. It was actually 11.5 expected points in total on all those plays. Now, obviously, you get to the end, you can only score a maximum of eight points when we talk about the two-point conversion and everything else that happened on that drive. So how do you, how can you have 11.5 EPA? Well, it's because you're running down the EPA total each time you're unsuccessful. I mean, the expected points before the play, you're running that down each time when you're unsuccessful on first, second, and third down. Then you have a huge play on fourth down. You have a high expectation now going forward, and then you run it down again on first, second, and third down, and then you add it back on fourth down. So that's how you get over that amount. But it was basically just like a handful of plays in these games which kept it close. The 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 conversions for the the three conversions for the Bucks, the one failure on the one yard line for the Bills, and the interception for the Bills. Those plays is what kept it close. Other than that, it was pretty much a blowout for the Bills in this game, and a, de- a great defensive performance by the the Bills too, because you know they gave up that first touchdown. They gave up was the the Bucks only had to go twenty three yards to score the touchdown. Uh, most of that on a screen pass. And then the touchdown at the end, they had to convert three fourth downs in a row. So in a normal circumstances, one of those would have been a punt or, or a kick because some of those were substantial. And they converted two of those via penalty, not, not actually picking it up. Um, but overall, yeah, the numbers end up looking similar because of that. Now, I think we'll point out here the Bills' great rushing efficiency in this one. And it wasn't, wasn't just Josh Allen who was efficient. James Cook also 4.8 yards per carry. Latavius Murray was, was, was pretty... It's kind of butt though, like five carries for seven yards here. Um, but also Allen, you know, had three design runs, which is good. He had three this week. He had three last week. I know there's some injury concerns. Um, it was actually on a scramble where he might've tweaked his arm a little bit. He had that elbow injury last year, which definitely affected his performance. So it's a little bit concerning there, but I don't know. I do think it's good that he's running a bit more. If you looked at this game, um, and what he's been doing running the ball. So he has six design runs the last two weeks, and he only had seven the first six weeks. So is that a shift in game plan? Is it randomness? I'm not sure. I do think they're starting to understand, though, that they probably have to use them in design runs and not just scrambles. So mixing that back into his game, I think, is pretty significant. He also had, I think it was three scrambles in this game, four scrambles in the last game, so he's doing some more scrambling there, too. Um, what's interesting about this one is the two quarterbacks both end up at positive 0.14 EPA per play. Very different ways of doing it, though. Allen was much, much better fundamentally. Baker got those fourth down conversions. Uh, Baker's been crazy splits on early downs and late downs. Now, he's had a lot of late down plays, but still, two-thirds of his plays this season are early down plays versus one-third are late down plays. And late down, I mean third and fourth down. So, on two-thirds of his plays, he's produced exactly zero expected points on 197 dropbacks and designed runs, zero EPA, whereas on 99 plays that he's had on third and fourth down, he's generated 33.3 EPA. So all of his 
expected points are coming on third and fourth down. That that was the case earlier this year. Wasn't the case last week when he had a game that was more normal, not generating huge value on third and fourth down. And then boom, it becomes the case again this week that that that, that ended up happening. Not sustainable, Bull, but even if the Bucks can get average performance out of Mayfield, right now he's in the top 10 of efficiency, believe it or not. Even if they can get average performance from him, you know, with some void years that they threw onto the end of his contract, a $1.7 million cap charge this season for Baker Mayfield. Not bad business, I think, for a Bucks team that has some surrounding talent, you know, and is not just in full-on tanking mode. I know everyone's saying, oh, they should trade Mike Evans. It's just probably not going to happen. Um, probably not going to happen because you need a team to be willing to take on that deal, It'll give you at least probably like a second-round pick for it to look good. And Evans is old, and he's in the last year of his contract. You're going to have to pay him a lot more money going forward. So, I mean, old-ish. He's like 30, I think. So, but he's kind of an old 30 because he's been in the league for a long time, having started and, and played a lot, uh, coming out as an underclassman in college. So we'll see what happens in that going forward. Again, it's going to be one of those ones where this game doesn't look super impressive by the final score, but I saw it as a pretty impressive win for the Bills. So I don't know. They'll probably be number one in my power rankings again next week. And then, you know, more people will say, actually, fewer people will say it's ridiculous because they won this game. But uh, people will probably still still think that that is way, way off uh, versus their feelings, their feelings about this. Uh, speaking of feelings, uh, there was an interesting thing where, again, talk about me, me not being that agreeable, where Ben Baldwin posted something about how in their last four drives for the Bills that they basically got to midfield and then stopped and punted away and that they, as, as, as if they weren't really trying after being almost unstoppable before that, other than a fourth down conversion and an interception. The thing is, on three of those drives, not the final drive. The final drive, they ran the ball four times and they passed the ball twice. So they were kind of in clock killing, not really trying mode. But on the three previous drives where they where they got stopped in midfield, uh, they dropped back to pass 16 times versus four designed runs. I don't know. I think I think they still had their foot on the pedal. Uh, ben mentioned that they punted it from midfield on all those drives where they could have gone for it. But I mean, this is Sean McDermott up by 14 points. You think fourth and three on their own 48-yard line, they're going to go for it? No, they're not, they're not even going to go for it even if it's a tied game. So, again, I don't think there was, like, a change in mentality for the Bills on that. But it's funny because some people are like, if you watch this game, you saw that they changed their mentality. I mean, I don't know. One of the drives was killed because he took a 10-yard sack, and then they just couldn't convert the third downs. I think they're trying to convert the third downs. You think they're not trying to convert the third downs? It's amazing how much people watching the game – like you convert a third down versus you don't convert a third down. People read all kinds of ideas about how good the teams are, what they're trying to do, all kinds of narratives that they want to build into it. Hey, the Bills were really hot to start the game. And then they had three drives where they were okay after that. And they could have pressed down the, the gas pedal a little bit more by going for it on fourth down. But I don't think they truly give up. And I mean, not truly give up. But I don't think they truly were just in clock killing mode. And a lot of teams don't do this. I think we look at this and we say, oh, they had a 98% win probability in the third quarter. They're up by two touchdowns. It's a big favorite. So that means they weren't really trying. No, coaches don't view it that way. Coaches will want multiple score leads in the fourth quarter, deep into the fourth quarter most of the time before they're willing to really just run out the clock. And that seems to be the case here for the, the Bills offense in this one. All right, let's get to week. Actually, whoa, whoa, whoa. One thing I want to talk about, because I'm not going to write about it. I probably should have. So the, the, the controversy, controversy of the week. Let's talk about that a little bit before we get to um, 
week eight. And I know I don't spend that much time on week eight, but you know, one on your, oh, sorry. I'm trying to bring up Twitter because I want to find, <laughs> I want to find the Brian Burke tweet that everyone is, is dunking on poor Brian Burke. You know, Burke's got some takes. I have to say, I like Brian. I met him multiple times. He's like a godfather of football analytics. If there was a Mount Rushmore, of football analytics i definitely would put mr burke on there um oh here we go (laughs) he has a good attitude about this though so here it is let let me let me uh let me bring it in here so you guys can see it so here's what happens okay i i gotta i gotta like build some context here for everything that's happening okay so here's what happened so ESPN has their receiver metrics that they're finally publicizing um, for this season. They were they, their their home was at five thirty eight before, but you know five thirty eight RIP five thirty eight. Um, so now they're they're putting them somewhere else. Now we are, I guess, seven weeks into the NFL season because it came out earlier before this game happened. And so they have the receiver metrics, which I was using in my adjusted quarterback efficiency. I'm still deciding whether I want to incorporate it again this season, but I was incorporating it last season, for making adjustments to quarterbacks based upon the openness, the open score that they have in their receiving metrics, uh, receiving ratings, which is based upon tracking data and modeling they have there based upon scheme, defender positioning, expectations, like how open. And it's, it's, it's done on a one to a hundred basis a receiver is versus what you would expect for other receivers. They also have a catch number, which is kind of like contested catches a little bit, but also just catching in traffic number. And then they also have a yak number. Okay. And all those three build up into an overall receiver rating that they have. Go check it out. ESPN has their own analytics website. It's just ESPNanalyticsaltogether.com. Okay. That's the preface. Now the result is Seth Walder of ESPN analytics, friend of the pod, um, he sends, he's not like a modeling guy. He's more of a, he's like a former beat writer, but he's very, um, he's very adept at, at using numbers and, and building storylines around them and, um, analyzing with them also. I think he's got some, some R skills too. So Seth sends out top of the leaderboard for the receiving tra- tracking metrics. I didn't even get what it was. I didn't, I didn't realize what RTM was. So it's receiver track, uh, tracking metrics. For tight ends, he sends it out and, you know, Kelsey's up there along with George Kittle. But then Dalton Kincaid is right up there and, and Mark Andrews. So here's here's how it starts. Here's how it starts. Um, Harbs's burner account. I don't think this is really Harbs's burner account, but it's Johnny Harbaugh account says Tyreek Hill leads the NFL in yak and is somehow ranked 32nd here. Question mark. So here we go. <laughs> This is the beginning of the end for uh, ESPN's uh, receiving tracking metrics. No, I'm just kidding. I, I still I still like him. So that's where it starts. So that's an interesting question, right? Okay, yeah. Tyreek Hill seems like a yak monster. A lot of yak. A lot of yak in that offense. Um, Tyreek Hill is kind of fast. I think that plays into it. You know, he's probably creating some of that yak. He's not breaking tackles, but he's probably creating a decent amount of yak. So that's where it all starts. Okay? And then... We go back, and then then we get to the next comment here from from Mr. Walder responding to the Tyreek Hill thing. And this is when it all falls apart. Remember, anyone who wants to attack a metric 
and dismiss it. All you need is like one player or one team or one anything that you can point to, which is probably wrong, which I which I'll agree is probably wrong. And again, you know, all models are wrong. Some are useful. So it doesn't mean the model's not useful, but it means it's wrong in this one circumstance. Those who are looking to attack are going to say, well, it's wrong in this one circumstance, so the whole thing is garbage, right? So this is what happens with uh, Tyreek here. So Seth's response is saying it's relative to expectation at the time of the catch for Hill. So a lot of times Hill's already passed the last defender. So in those cases, Yak might only meet expectations. Now, part of the reason he's, he's so far past the defender is because he's like so open because he's Tyreek Hill. And he says in here, and this is where this is where it starts to fall apart, says speed at the time of the catch is a factor in the expectation. So speed at the time of the catch goes into the expectation, which is not credited to the receiver. It's it's how much you're exceeding that expectation by if you're the receiver. So if Hill is going faster than the defenders, that will hurt his score. So in other words, if Hill is going really, really fast, when he catches the ball, which is based upon Tyreek Hill being Tyreek Hill to a degree, he's not going to get credit for that. He's only going to get credit for now that he's caught the ball. Is he going even faster, faster than what you think that expectation would be based upon the previous expectation, based upon how fast he was? I know everyone's thoroughly confused here, but basically it's like Tyreek Hill before the catch has something to do with Tyreek Hill after the catch, his yak, which isn't being incorporated into this into this model, which I'll say is a flaw. Now, Burke's response in the first part, I think is somewhat reasonable in that he says um, that they actually looked at it. They looked at adjusting for those things and they found that overall trying to give receivers credit for their, this is a really, now I'm getting very confusing here for how much faster they are before the catch than what you would expect another person to be before the catch did not add additional signal, additional consistency, additional stickiness to the model overall. So they decided not to do it. And again, this is a case again, we're talking about the usefulness of the model versus whether it's right in every circumstance. So I think from a usefulness perspective, this kind of falls into the, the theory of parsimony. So you're saying if you're not getting improvements to the model overall, and by adding something which adds a layer of complexity, which adds a layer of potential other mistakes to it, then just don't have it. Make the model as simple as possible is how you best want to do things. So what may work overall, which may prevent things being wrong for other receivers a lot of the cases, because we're talking about adding a very complex calculation to this thing, um, overall might increase the wrongness by adding this thing, but it might help for Tyreek Hill in this one circumstance. But we've all identified this, right? So we all kind of know, uh, maybe we can ignore this metric for Ty Tyreek Hill, but maybe it has some interesting things for other players. You know, it it's like a way to explore, again, the usefulness versus how good it is. But the real reason that this all turned into uh, a hellscape on here is that Burke, in replying to these different things, Replying to someone saying Tyreek Hill is 16th by these metrics, but in reality, he's the best receiver in the NFL. This is just like a rando reply. Never reply. Never tweet. Uh, Burke replies with what is admittedly uh, an absurd take, in, in my, in my uh, humble opinion, where he says, Hill is great, but somewhat one-dimensional. See, and I, I'm not sure what the one-dimensional part is. He's not tall, I guess, but, you know. The dude's getting targeted on like 25 to 30% of his, um, 
of his routes run. So it's kind of hard to build that he's like this one dimensionalness when you're getting targeted that off that often. Uh, but anyway, Burke goes on. He's a great fit for KC and now Miami, but he's not a Diggs or Jefferson or AJ Brown. He's in a great situation. And th- so again, you know, stretching credibility <laughs> a little bit here. I mean, those are great receivers. They're younger. So, well, well, at least Jefferson and Brown are significantly younger. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to this, but this, this, he's in a great situation. Eh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, he, he is in a great situation. He was in a great situation. I'll give you that. But, you know, he's, he's kind of like drastically improved to a, um, I don't think it's all Mike McDaniel what's going on there. I don't think it all happens to be that even though he's the most focused on receiver down the field, he just ends up being wide open all the time. I don't think it's all scheming. I think it's just like, players can't adjust their instincts, right? Like if you look at the touchdown that Miami scored at the end of the first half against the Eagles, they had him bracketed, double covered. When Tua first threw the ball into the end zone, I thought like it was too far. I was like, well, he threw that way too far. But Tyreek still got to it. Like it just blows your instincts, your mind. You can't like rewire your brain to deal with one person. And that's why Tyreek keeps on getting open. But anyway, and then the last part where Burke, this is it here for, for Burke. This is the nail in the coffin. He says, if teams could redraft all the wide receivers, I doubt very seriously. You know, it's a Twitter, I know, but stop, stop doing the very seriously. You can just throw the doubt in there. I doubt he'd be taken in the top 10. Boom. Explosions <laughs> coming off on that one. 337 uh, retweets. I can't parse out the quote tweets on this, but for the fact that it's only got 28 likes and 305 replies, uh, I'm guessing that it's got a whole lot of quote tweets. I guess the quote tweet is like probably 30 to one here versus retweets on this one. And then, um, yeah, so this, so this again, like this is just a bad take in my opinion. I love Burke. I love Brian. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll have him come on the pod and we can talk about our differences of opinion on here. I'm willing to hear uh, his take. In my opinion, it's a bad take. I know it's maybe backed up by this metric, but it's very hard to justify it with how much he's targeted, how productive he is, how highly esteemed he is in the NFL. And I just think the fact that he wouldn't be taken in the top 10, if we talk about like irrespective of age, which I think I don't think is what Burke's talking about when he's talking about not being taken in the top 10, like irrespective of age, like there's no doubt in my mind that he would go in the top three, I think. So, like, I think it's just kind of as close to, like, factually incorrect as we could get. But none of this really has to do with the model. Okay? It's not like Brian Burke is sitting back and he's thinking to himself, you know what? I don't think Tyreek Hill is a top 10 receiver, so therefore I'm going to build a model that shows he's not a top 10 receiver. I don't think that's what's happening. I think he might be reading too much into what the model says, and maybe he just has some opinions that are not that don't comport with what most people think about Tyreek Hill. I don't think it affected the model at all. I don't think it's like he's building up, but some people will take it into that, that measure. And they'll also use this reply again, almost a million views on this reply. Now we'll use this reply as, um, you know, discrediting the model itself. And really it's just a person who worked on the model has a bad take. I don't think it affects like the model itself. He talks about what's affecting the model and we can, we can discuss what's going on there. Um, I appreciate Burke's, it seems like his lack of being affected by this because someone quote tweeted it and said, this may go down as the most ratioed tweet of all time. I mean, clearly that's not the case, but again, that's a little hyperbole here on the old Twitter. 
And then Burke responds and he says, won't even be close to my own record. <laughs> so Burke has gotten ratioed a few times, a few times before. But one thing I'll say is one of the previous ratioed, and people are bringing this up, I'm going to defend Burke, and I think I have in the past on a previous thing. So there were ESPN metrics for um, run block, run defense metrics. And Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald's effect, not like his fundamental being, but his effect in run defense was shown as being kind of average-ish. This is a few years back. Everyone went fucking nuts on this one. Um, but I actually think that was correct. Now, the problem was there was a headline for an article that says Aaron Donald's an average run defender. And that's kind of like conflating the results of the model, which is the way Aaron Donald is being used and the way he's playing, which is at that point in time, and it's changed since then. At that point in time, he was just shooting gaps to get up the field to potentially get to the quarterback most of the time, which was leaving bigger gaps behind. So if he didn't make a play in the backfield, he was leaving more rushing lanes for running backs. And therefore the overall effect might seen as being average. So the fact that he was even able to be average while he was so highly intent on getting up the field and playing the pass kind of shows how good he is. Right. Um, but people were taking that as saying, like they're saying that Aaron Donald is an average athlete or an average player or an average, whatever. And I actually, I actually agree with like the ESPN model, you know, the model itself that they had, the one they used to call Aaron Donald average now shows him as being a good run defender the last couple of years, because they've kind of changed him. He's, he's not being used to shoot gaps nearly as much. He's being used to hold a little bit more in the gaps. And then guess what? He's a good run defender when he is used to stop the run. He's used more to stop the run. He ends up being a good run defender. So, like, I actually defend that. I think that was one where there was a controversy that wasn't necessarily correct. The Tyreek Hill thing, yeah, I'll give that to you. Now, they didn't write an article. ESPN did not write an article specifically saying Tyreek Hill isn't a top 10 valuable receiver. Like, they wrote an article saying Aaron Donald is an average run defender. So, no, they didn't. If they trust me, if they'd done that, then all, all, all shit would have broken loose on that. But that's that's the controversy. Take of what you will, usefulness, wrongness. <sighs> Sorry, I just sneezed there. Usefulness, wrongness, modeling, everything else coming into play there. Take of what you will. All right, I, I, I'm rambling. Let's get into the numbers for this week, according to my power rankings adjusted versus the spread. The spreads I'm pulling up from NFL Faster, so if they're a little bit different at your local uh, bookie, then let me know. Sorry, another little uh, gap there to blow the old uh, the old nose. Okay, so let's go through here. So my numbers actually had, uh, just a look back here, Tampa Bay versus Buffalo. Despite the fact that I had Buffalo as the best team in the NFL, my number matched, matched exactly to the tenth of a point the spread. So I had them at 10. They were at 10. Uh, obviously, they didn't cover, but they may have actually been, and they ended up being a 10, according to my adjusted numbers. You know, props to me. Um, okay, first one here. I actually really like this one. And it, it, again, it falls into the category. Like, I always like the most disgusting ones. So Carolina is a three-and-a-half-point underdog at home off of a bye. Does Houston have a bye, too? Um, that's part of my modeling, so I should uh, – I know Carolina has a bye because they're switching their offensive coordinator. But – yeah, Houston has a bye, too. So they're both coming off a bye. But still, at home, uh, it's kind of more things to potentially correct over the bye, I would say, for the Panthers than versus uh, than for the Texans. 
But new play caller, I don't know how much that matters. Normally, a new play caller, teams end up getting better just because they only replace the old play caller when things are going bad. So, like, you take advantage of natural regression when a new player caller comes in. But anyway, they have a new play caller there. Um, the differences between C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young, while at this point, even based upon what we've seen so far, you could say, oh, it's only been seven weeks of the NFL season. But, you know, one guy was a number one pick, one guy was a number two pick. I'll take the number two pick who's performed well so far this season, who's currently 11th in EPA per play versus the number one pick who is 29th in EPA per play. I, I go ahead and flip that. I'm willing to take even this much evidence and do that, even though I like Bryce Young more than CJ Stroud coming into the year. It's okay. You know, it, these are tough decisions, right? One guy's number one, one guy's number two. Oh, actually, you know what? I hold on. Whoops. Those uh, EPA numbers were not correct because I had, I was doing late down, early down analysis earlier today. So let me, um, let me uh, change this here. So anyway, but no, CJ Stroud is in the top 10 though. CJ Stroud is in the top 10 this year for um, EPA. And then um, Bryce Young is even worse, I believe. Sorry, this makes for great podcasting here. Um, because I have to I was doing the Baker Mayfield splits on early downs and late downs, and that's how I got confused here. Okay, okay, now we got it. Okay, so 2023, at least a hundred dropbacks for these quarterbacks. We have Stroud at 10th. So Stroud is tied with Jared Goff for 10th in EPA per play, and then Bryce Young is 31st. So if you look at near the bottom here, we have Mac Jones at 29th, Kenny Pickett at 30th, Bryce Young at 31st, Zach Wilson at 32nd, and Daniel Jones at 33rd for any players who have at least 100 dropbacks. So significant difference there. Um, something to think about, definitely. Now, Stroud has been not as good at CPOE. So maybe that's like a little bit of a hint then maybe, you know, there's definitely predictive qualities to CPOE. I don't want to overweight it. I think it can be overweighted when it's done this like 50-50 formula potentially with how Baldwin looks at it in his rankings. But if you take, again, the same 33 quarterbacks, you look at their CPOE this year, Stroud is the fifth lowest of all these 33 quarterbacks, negative 2.8%. Anthony Richardson was the worst at 7.7%. So he's right between Dobbs and Kenny Pickett. Jordan Love is worse. Actually, Matthew Stafford is worse. That's interesting. Um, but again, if we continue to build up here, we have Burrow who's having a bad season, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, Deshaun Watson. So it's like guys who aren't playing well. So there's definitely like some strong correlation to efficiency and to grading in, in particular for, for PFF. And whereas you have Bryce Young, now he's throwing a ton of, of, of small pa short passes, right? But still, 1.7 positive CPOE. So he's 15th. I mean, not a huge difference, right? What are we talking about? Uh, you know, net-net, we're talking about 4.5% difference in completion percentage versus expectation. But it's something. It's it's the difference between being near the bottom and being in the middle of the league. In uh, ADOT, now Stroud's going against a much higher ADOT, 8.3 yards versus uh, Bryce Young, which is pretty low. He's actually got the fourth lowest A dot in the NFL, but A dot you can have a productive offense with a low A dot. 
Uh, Patrick Mahomes has got the third lowest in the NFL. Jared Goff has got the fifth lowest in the NFL. Dak Prescott has got the sixth lowest in the NFL. Trevor Lawrence has got the seventh lowest in the in the NFL. So there's not like a lot of signal there when it comes to a dot and like how well a quarterback is playing. Um, but the higher the a dot, you can have more variance in what the CPOE is on here. So I think that like the the performance between these two guys, I think Stroud's been better. I think Stroud has better projection going forward. But I'd say the difference between these two is probably less than what we think. Combined with the fact that if we're looking at what will happen over a bye week, um, the potential for improvement over a bye week, and a rookie being able to sit back and settle himself and take everything in, you know, you're more likely to get like some positive regression, I think, from or the amount of positive regression from Bryce Young than you would get anything getting even better than 10th best quarterback by efficiency for CJ Stroud. Um, and you know, they haven't made many big plays here. Now, can you generate big plays? I think some of it is the offense is kind of like a neutered sort of offense for, you know, Adam Thielen is your main guy. So you got a little bit of problems there, but maybe they can figure out a way to generate some big explosive plays. I mean, my numbers kind of assume those explosive plays will come as long as you're being successful on a play-by-play basis. Not always the case for, for all offenses there. And again, if we look into like what builds into some of these numbers for efficiency, Bryce Young has a lot of fumble efficiency lost. He has a lot of sack and negatives that come from interceptions. Uh, he's, he's had fumble sixes that have gone into this one. So, again, it's something that will probably regress a little bit there, all while saying I do think C.J. Stroud is better. The question is whether or not there should be a three-and-a-half-point favorite, which is over that key number, right? A three-and-a-half-point, half you're getting that, that half point. Whether they should be a three-and-a-half-point favorite – on the road here. Eh, that seems seems too much for me. Too much, too much for me. Now, it looks like it's actually these numbers are skewed a little bit towards the Panthers. Like, if you want to bet three and a half now, it looks like it's minus 112 in some places or minus 115. So it's getting close to getting down to three. I don't know. I think three would definitely be more appropriate. Maybe even, well, not probably not two and a half. Three and a half, three is fine. Um, like three, I might not bet, but at three and a half, I'd probably bet uh, the Panthers on this one. So that's, that's first off, but the Panthers have been horrible. So I don't really have like great numbers to throw into there. Um, obviously worst team in almost all power rankings. And also according to the markets, you know, the worst team in the NFL, I don't think that the worst team in the NFL though, with Bryce young second half of the season, we'll see rookie performance definitely does improve. Like most of the time I'd be very skeptical of first half, second half splits definitely is the case that rookie performance, uh, improves in the second half. So you got more room to improve, of course, if you are um, Bryce Young versus CJ Stroud. Okay, so that's number one. Take with that what you will. Uh, most of these other games looking pretty close. Um, I don't know. Giants, no, I can't go with that. It's close. Close with the Giants is two and a half point dogs at home, but I need to get, get that up to three. Um, Pittsburgh, Jacksonville, really close on this one. Again, two and a half point dogs. If that was up to three. I would like it. Same thing for Tennessee, Atlanta, two and a half. If that was up to three, I would like Tennessee in this game. There's a lot of spreads that are just don't quite make it to the level that I would, that I would want to see in this one. Um, it likes the Rams a little bit at plus six. So let's see, is that still there? Plus six. Ooh, six and a half. 
So yeah, I definitely like it at six and a half. Looks like you can get six and a half at points bet and bet MGM. Um, so yeah, that one, I like it a little bit, not great, but a little bit. And lastly, the big one here, <laughs> and again, this is just like, I'm just, I'm going down in flames betting against the, uh, the Ravens, but uh, my numbers kind of, kind of like the Cardinals nine and a half point dogs at home. I mean, the thing is the it's probably overrating Dobbs a bit because he performed pretty well at the beginning of the season and then has come crashing back down to earth the last few weeks. But still, I'm just not that impressed by this Ravens offense. And who knows? Maybe they can continue to just make big plays and score touchdowns um, and not be that successful on a play-by-play basis. But I'm more skeptical. So that would be a, kind of the almost the biggest play for me at 9.5. Let me see. Has it gone up to 10 anywhere? Um, Where is it? Dun, dun. Why can't I find this here? Um, sorry, I'm some problems here. Cardinals. Ah, here we go. Nine and a half. No, it's still, still in nine and a half. Open at six and a half, so it's moving. Uh, that's probably before the Ravens' strong performance. I think we're overreacting a little bit to the Ravens. And, you know, by the media numbers, by right now, the Ravens are eighth, it looks like, in their unpredictable market-based rating which I think is okay, actually. I'm not that out of line with what the market has on the Ravens here. But if you look at power rankings for media, they were pretty consistently fourth in the power rankings for media. I think baseball impact, they're five and two, and they just destroyed the the uh, Lions the week before. Some fifth, some third in there. So the market's definitely much lower on the Ravens than the media and the public probably is at this point. I'm probably even a little bit lower than the market's. So public markets and then me on the Ravens. Sorry, Ravens. Uh, you know, our, our Ravens, but um, it is what it is so far on, on this one. One other, one other thing to mention about Buffalo is funny. Everyone's saying their defense stinks. Uh, they're still ninth, according to the market, in their defensive ratings based upon spreads going forward. So everyone's so, so sure that their defense is going to fall off a cliff. I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, those are the ones for me this week. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Got to roll out of here. I'll be with you Monday morning again to review everything. Please go to the Substack, subscribe, support the work, support everything here, support the fact that I can continue to do these uh, live streams and podcasts for free. Uh, otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone on Monday morning. Have a great weekend and enjoy the football. Uh, no buys this week, which I kind of don't like, honestly, because I like doing less work on a week-by-week basis, but no buys. So everyone is engaged this week. All right. Bye. Bye.